about to tune into the Daydreaming Sensei podcast, the show where we explore and discover the surprising connections between subjects that may seem unconnected. As Da Vinci put it, study the science of art, study the art of science, learn how to see and realize that everything connects to everything else. Allow me, your daydreaming sensei, to guide you as me and my guest co-hosts take you deeper below the surface of things to make sense of our complex world. Welcome. Hey, it's nice to have you guys back with us for part two of this discussion. Last time we started to deconstruct hustle culture and look at what a work ethic really is. Let's dig deeper today at the roots of our modern ideas about work and how it relates to getting into a state of flow so you can be more effective at work. So when, let's say that we now see the concept, right? The idealism in, in the modern productivity. Right. Like when it comes to scaling down to our personal choice and and say right now we know that that exists and 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 it still is right now um we're kind of like in transition because of uh, this space where a lot of people are doing uh working from home so so a lot of people are kind of like in that loop of like the pat that's the past habit and now we're bridging into a new habit and and a lot of people can see i mean obviously when you stop working for a while, hustling or running to work uh, or having to commute to work, you start to, to already know how how much much more relaxing it is to be having a, a more steady, natural pace working from home. Right? So I think this is already raising a lot of questions for a huge number of population who who could feel that transition and and but it also comes down to like sustaining that habit and not falling back again into that too hustling too you know overloaded and i think the, the question here is like how how can we put it more into practice to to keep on asking ourselves these questions like am i doing too much Am I am I going to fall back into into that overproductive, or or right. what what should we develop as a as a daily lifestyle to to sustain right. and not necessarily having to be uh, in a one physical environment, the workplace all the time, in order to be productive, right? And yes. um, a lot of uh, I think more than sixty percent of Japanese workers say that. They would want to continue to work from home after the pandemic is over. And, you know, many big companies have also uh, declared that um, a lot of remote work will continue for the foreseeable future. So I think this is some this is a moment for pause for sure that we've all needed to kind of reassess our work life balance and um, whether the what we have assumed to be the way to work is really the most effective and productive way to go about it. Um, and But also taking it one step further and really uh, investigating, using this moment for pause, 
and the more solitude uh, to reflect and examine what we consider to be productivity and how we measure it. Because if you spend more time to really sort of uh, dive deep, to create something that really reflects you, that you're proud of, and um, you're not producing in the normal sense of the word as much um, as many you know, pages of writing or units of work, um, is that less being is that being less productive, or are you rather you know taking time to create something that is more thoughtful, that perhaps would have greater value to the world around you? rather than just putting something on the shelf for the sake of it. Agree. And I think here, uh, this it's inseparable from uh, a conversation about our economic systems because uh, that is uh, what Marx was describing as enfriendum or alienation from our work. Um, you know, this isn't a, a, a discussion about capitalism versus socialism or communism because it's not that simple and I feel like um, there's a lot of resistance towards uh, Marxist ideas about work today there feels like there's almost no room to kind of look at some of these ideas uh, and, and that's of course because we live in a highly capitalist uh, society where pretty much all of us partake in the benefits of capitalism and have been doing so for a while it's the way we were raised. We're very ingrained in the system. But Marx had some very interesting ideas about uh, you know, being the most vocal and famous critic of capitalism. He had some very interesting ideas about why capitalism and its relationship to work doesn't end up working out for a lot of people. So let's look at some of these, okay? Yes. So what is labor? Now, according to Marx, the... Labor is um, the essence of our human nature. It's our ability to work, to imagine, and to create something better. But we don't just create for ourselves. We create for each other because we're social animals, right? Work can be one of the sources of our greatest joy. But in order to be fulfilled, we need to be able to see ourselves in our work and what we've created. We need to have ownership of our work. Agree. Now, he calls he called this the species essence. You know, I, I am what I do. Um, would you say Would you say today that um, uh, a lot of us or the vast majority of us are able to see ourselves in our work? No. <laughs> it's a straight no. <laughs> it's just a straight up no. It's a straight. What about your relationship to your to your work in the past? Let's say, so we will. This is an interesting um, side note because Dewey and I we both lived in Shanghai, which is a you know a, a hustle <laughs> metropolis, right? I mean the grind really never stops in China, and we were both working there. Um, which is where we met before the pandemic. Uh, Dewey was running um, uh, a beauty care, skincare brand. Uh, Dewey, what was your experience uh, with regards to uh, work culture in, in China? Well, it, if anyone would just step into 
into the sh- Chinese scene of um, of uh, working, then immediately there are I could use like the word like some rules, <laughs> a kind of like a, a very common rule. It feels like a rule. You see, even I'm using the word rule because like if you're not in, then you're out. <laughs> And one of those key um, work, okay, let's just use work ethic, but it really felt like a rule, is that you have to be available 24-7 <laughs> to answer your client. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I don't. I do not miss that on WeChat. Yeah. Exactly. And, and of course, like, in a WeChat platform, it's not just like a messaging app for for you and your friends but it went it went so far into the entire you know work you know work industry it's crazy because uh when WeChat started um I, I arrived in China in 2013 and WeChat was by then still very early and everyone on WeChat is still friends but then around two years in that's when suddenly most of the contact becomes work contact. And I think that was a, a transition of the entire country together, kind of like a decision made mm. together subconsciously <laughs> yeah. to to have work completely binded and mixed with life. With a personal messaging app, right? <laughs> Just put it together. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But and then it, it binded so much because, of course, like WeChat has moments and stuff. And, and of course, like we can just reflect on this just as, you know, Facebook turned into, a, you know, so much more for business. And right. it's, it's the same thing, right? Like social media plays quite, a, it plays such an important role to suddenly transform this whole habit together. Because suddenly there's no separation Mm. It's all it's all together. It's all it's all blended. Mm. So what 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 happened there is is that suddenly you overlap your life, your 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 daily thing where you're talking with your friends. And suddenly you got a notification from uh, your client. Right. So what do you have to do? Right. It's, psychologically, it's it's not easy because you're like I could see it coming. Like she's asking a question, but I'm still shilling. Yeah, and I still want to eat my dinner. <laughs> do I respond to it now? Yeah. Or do I respect my dinner, but then feel a mounting sense of guilt and anxiety because the client is is waiting for me to, you know, I don't know, solve their their crisis or whatever. Exactly, right? and then suddenly you start seeing your clients start liking your moments, and then you're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> and then next thing you know, they're right behind you in the restaurant, <laughs> or or they post like a, they tag you in something. Oh my god, <laughs> too close for comfort. And then now you have no choice but to you know. I wish they would just come up to. They should just ding dong at, at your doorstep and and just 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 come right up to my doorstep and just ask me whatever your question is, because that's almost what you're doing, right? You're invading my personal space. And, and and the the point that we're trying to emphasize is that uh, it the erosion of this space it's like when when the country collectively decided that they would use WeChat 
as as a work tool as much as they use it as a social and personal tool yeah. for recreation and leisure. What they decided to do without a great deal of conscientious and conscious debate was to just tie and conflate everything together. But I think in, in some ways the Chinese work ethic has been sort of like that. Like, mm. I mean, the Chinese, of course, have been incredibly, um, in terms of economic measures, hugely productive, which is why they're they're able to, um, you know, become uh, as developed as they have been in such a short amount of time, obviously, and the speed at which they produce things, um, it's unparalleled. Uh, I, I, from my personal experience, I would say I was in China for six years prior to the pandemic. And as a relatively young director, I had so many opportunities to uh, create beautiful work that I'm still proud of. But a lot of this work was possible only because it happened in such a tiny uh, space of time. And so it's sort of like whoever um, uh, uh, can do the job and is able to kind of get things done and it's, you know, have a strong enough personality to kind of push it through ends up being able to quite, kind of do quite a bit in a short amount of time. Um, and for those reasons, I've been really grateful, you know, being able to um, um, have those opportunities. But some of these things were surreal. Like, I mean, I remember like being offered to shoot uh, a job in, um, in Milan, in Milan, Italy, uh, for the first time, never having shot in Italy. And this was a call that I received on a Thursday. On the Friday night, the job was confirmed. And by Wednesday of the following week, I was in Milan for the first time uh, with uh, a, a crew that had never been to Italy uh, or much less work there. And we had to get locations and, um, and get ready to shoot on the Thursday. I mean, that is insane insane timelines um, but um, they have been able to be productive in that uh, again in that uh, measure of the word um, let's go back a little bit here to um, the, the sort of history I mean in China is an interesting uh, anecdote because China obviously uh, moved from communism and socialism into a version of capitalism which uh, only applies in the economy <laughs> and in business, but not so much the other you know, ideological aspects of capitalism um, socially, right? And um, so the, it's, a, it's a sort of a mixture of these systems. Um, and I want to go back to discuss sort of these economic and political systems because I feel that um, oftentimes when we discuss our attitudes and uh, what we hold to be our work ethic, which we've seen as our set of values or ethos around work, we don't analyze them or talk about them in the context of the system that has defined those modes of work for us or the systems that have influenced our attitudes towards work. And, you know, these two things are inseparable. Now, at its best, labor offers us a chance to externalize what is good inside of us. And I think that is something that um, was very apparent 
um, in pre-industrial societies, before the Industrial Revolution, when, when people had a very close relationship to their work. If you're a carpenter and you make a chair, you can see yourself and the hours that you spend shaping the wood in the form of the chair and in the function that it provides to the person who buys the chair. Uh, you know, the person that buys it chair comes and tells you, oh, I have a, this you know, um, awful back and your chair has uh, saved my back. I'm able to, to you know, um, spend hours at work and not feel a sore back or whatever. And that kind of direct pleasure that you get from seeing how your work has benefited somebody else, uh, it was really critical. It was the way that we had um, characterized our relationship to our work in pre-industrial societies, right? Now, then the Industrial Revolution happened, which is the beginning of modern capitalism, and this became increasingly rare because work is specialized now. Um, now, specialization makes the economy highly efficient and productive, but it makes it much harder for any one worker to get a sense of the contribution that their work is making to the needs of humanity. Because oftentimes your work is only focused on creating one small part of the product. So the work in the factory might um, be involved only in um, uh, stirring the flour or putting this one ingredient into the machine that will actually produce the bread or in um, you know, activating one part of the machine that will actually uh, cr craft the wood or, or chop the wood. And they certainly have no say in the marketing or the promotion or the reception of their work. They have no contact, direct contact with the, the, the consumers of their work and the benefits to them of their work. So for Marx, this kind of work is alienating. Mm. It's, uh, this, this is the kind of work that he describes, modern mm. work leading to alienation or infringement. That the worker feels himself only when he is not working, and when he is working, he does not feel himself. He is at home when he is not working, and not at home when he is working. This sort of separation of, of work and home, right? He describes four kinds of alienation, uh, from work and the first is the alienation from the product um, and because of mass production people only make a small part of the product um, so we don't see the totality of the product that we're creating the second type is alienation from one's labor um, and this is because of repetitive monotonous highly specialized job you know you're doing the same act over and over and over and over and over again and you don't have any input in the entire process of creating the product. So it, it results in alienation, right? There's also alienation from others. You know, when our work becomes so specialized and we can see exactly, uh, you know, what the next person who is doing exactly the same work that we're doing is getting paid, then there is competition in this rivalry, right? Because we're where it's so easy to kind of see that you know we're doing exactly the same work but we're paid differently or we're treated differently so that leads to alienation uh, from others from, from ours mm. and then the fourth which is the one that uh, I think Dewey and I we, we were really trying to hone into is alienation from ourselves if creativity is part of our human nature 
then alienation from creativity results in alienation from our very own natures. This goes so deep. <laughs> As do they ever. It goes so, <laughs> deep, deep dive. In the deep now. But we're living in a deep moment, are we not? This is such a deep, deep moment that we're in. We are in a deep moment. And, and it's so nice to dig up, you know, to, to, to you know, really... I could use like the word dig, really digging because like what you just collect here, you know, based on what uh, Carl has, has mentioned. Yeah. It's literally. I like, by the way, I, I like the way you call him Carl. Like he's our good friend, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> like we just had coffee with him the other day, Carl. We were just talking about work the other day, you know. Carl told me to bring up these issues. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The spirit we, is alive. <laughs> we got we got Carl we got, with us. And <laughs> in, in, it's so nice to dig that up because that is the fundamental questions we should be asking ourselves so much to the point that this is everything. This is really everything for this moment in time because we have a, a chance, you know, with this transition to make, to make a shift and, and, and to see through something that is deeper for us. And for, for, again, when we say us, we're talking about like collective, of course, globally, yes. because... Yes. Those four is is such a strong core of the word purpose. It is purpose. And a lot of people naturally, you know, when you put the word like, well, what's your, what's your life purpose? Like, yeah. you know, you get, like the word purpose becomes so big and so expansive that a lot of people just find it quite, they're kind of like, oh, that. I don't know, like, you know, or go blank or silent. And at least that's from what I, I see, again, from my surrounding, that the word purpose is not necessary. Like, it doesn't come fast or easy for most people because we've been in that loop for a long time, right? You know, the, the loop of, of the word purpose was never mentioned in our school, Really, they just say like, okay, what are you gonna do when you graduate, right? Go, oh, what, what do you want to do? Like, what are you good at? Right. But never really is asking, like, what is my purpose? What is what is this? What am I driven with? What am I so deeply curious about? Mm. Or like, how do I? How do we see like our life like in the next stage? In um, you know, in a what is that exciting path? Like purpose is about excitement, right? Adventurous in 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 going into such a crazy unknown. But these four questions, from what I see and and feel, now that you brought it up, is sparking. It you know it's kind of like a nudge. It starts with a nudge first, mm. but the purpose is here is to to spark something around the word purpose of our life. Mm. What do you feel? I feel that this. I think these two ideas of our purpose, our our sort of direction, 
and then the means that we have to be prepared to take to achieve that purpose in that direction are uh, two key components of why we have some of these issues that we've raised about work today, okay? And I'll explain what I mean. Um, I think that mm. from a very young age uh, in this modern education system, where uh, A, we're taught that we need to discover our purpose. The sooner the better, right? When I went to school in Singapore, um, I spent my primary and secondary education in that system. And in that system, you were streamed off based upon your purpose as early as primary school. And we're, we're talking about, um, uh, you know, you're in the age of like, uh, to give you an idea, primary school is like, uh, what is it? Um, uh, seven to the age of 12. Okay, and then you start secondary school and you're 13 years old. You're just in your early teens and you're already having to decide if you're going to take the science stream or the art stream. Now, you would think that you know a science stream uh, w- y- y- would be for people that want to be scientists and the art stream would be for people that want to be artists. But that's not, you, that's not necessarily the case. Like for myself... I knew from the earliest age, as early as I could remember having conscious thoughts, I knew that I was an artist. I knew that what I wanted to pursue was to develop my creativity. But because I was studious, because I was good in schoolwork, um, I had, you know, um, I ha- I, my parents wanted me to, to pick the science stream. And the reason being, when you in that system when you pick the science stream you can't come back you, sorry when when you pick the science stream you can you can cross over into the art stream at any point in time but the opposite isn't true if you pick the art stream you can't then transfer over into the science stream at a later date in in essence your career paths to do with science with the sciences if you wanted to be a physicist a biologist all of these all of these pure sciences are cut off for you. And so what inversely what that also meant was that uh, students, people that were not so great at school or schoolwork or their studies were just automatically lumped into the art stream. And so, you know, there's this streaming, which is it's, it's, it's in Singapore, but it's also in many parts of Asia. At a very early age, they're, they're streaming you off into, um, uh, you know, wh- what... It's dictated to be your direction in life. And you're having to make these very stressful decisions at a very young age when you haven't had the exposure to a variety of subjects to be able to be informed. And so uh, the reason why we do this is because knowledge today and expertise today is increasingly specialized, right? Coming back to capitalism and the capitalist idea of work and what the economy demands from us. There is so much to know in any specialization of work that you, you gotta start early. You, you don't have time to just have a generalist uh, or you know, broader um, education system where you get to learn some of this and then put it down and then learn some of that and then put it down and just trial and error, which of course is more of a Western um, approach to education. It's a, and it does lead to more fulfilled um, children <laughs> and less suicides from um, uh, overwork. Um, 
but because of the specialization, because of all the niche and all of the, 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 the depth of information that we, we now have on any one subject, we're having to start much, much earlier on to decide what we want to focus on in order to ever be able to, to develop that kind of expertise um, during our, our work and adult life. And, and I think that therein lies uh, the, the issue. So, and, and I think there is a solution. Uh, and the solution is um, a little bit of spiritualism here, okay? But this isn't just woo-woo spiritualism. I want to preface, it's neuroscience. And what I'm talking about is getting into states of flow, i.e. not having as much resistance when you work. Now, let's let's kind of segue here to kind of highlight and emphasize a really important concept, which also touches on what we were discussing earlier about wellness uh, and our attitudes and our awareness of using wellness attitudes and approaches towards work today. And what we're talking about is flow versus hard work, a.k.a. labor, what Marx described as, as, as labor or hard work, okay? Now, when we say hard work, hustle culture, the grind, you know, what we're saying is we're implying that there's resistance. There is resistance implied in that very term, hard work. And that, that, that is part and parcel of this um, capitalist idea of needing to focus as early as quick as possible, you know, pick one quickly, focus on it, put in all the hours of work, the, you know, 10,000 hours as Malcolm Gladwell describes so that you can hopefully reach um, an expert level early enough to beat out the next person, right? You want to get there as quickly as possible and then just trash your competition. This is all capitalist speak. This is how we speak today about work. Now, but this is, when we talk like that, when we talk in the hustle and the grind mode, in other words, we're already embodying a lot of resistance in our approach and our relationship to work. It assumes that the work isn't pleasurable, which is why hard work, hard work or hard effort is needed to complete it, right? And, you know, we, and on, the, on the flip side, when you love and inhabit your work, it doesn't feel like hard work. You couldn't really complain about it. Yes, there's always challenges and things to solve, and there's action, things that you have to do, but there's, there's a key difference here, and that is there's action from a place of great effort and action from an effortless place, which comes from alignment. And alignment comes with your purpose, alignment with your talents, alignment with your gifts, alignment with your internal well-being and what you know to be um, uh, to feel good and to be true for you. So, and that's why I love that episode of uh, "Call My Agent" with Isabel Hupier. I love that because, to me, that episode is a metaphor of flow. You know, she, I, I remember that scene where, where she's being rushed by her agent from, like, so they, yeah. they, they find a way to get her in the middle of a shoot to get an excuse. You know, she, she basically, she, it's a death scene that she's shooting, and she does it so well that they only have to do one take. And then after she, her character dies, she's legally allowed to ask for a body double to stand in as a, her corpse in the next scene. So during this time, she's able to quickly 
rush over to the other side of Paris to do the other shoot, right? And then when she's in the car <laughs> putting on her makeup, she gets a call and it's from the radio station. And she's five minutes late for an interview on air. So they have to stop by the radio station and do this interview. And I just love that moment when her agent, uh, actually not her agent, but uh, the agent that's driving her is in the, in the garage, standing outside the car, listening to Isabel on the air, talking about time. <laughs> and she's so eloquent and she's so understated and so poetic and so completely calm that you would never know <laughs> that she was, you know, she was rushing to get to another shoot on the other side of town. And, and, and then, of course, um, you know, just when you thought that um, she was going to miss the first shoot, because they were getting ready to shoot her last scene again, and then she's being held up on the other shoot, she appears in the nick of time, fully dressed, in her like her costume <laughs> right and it's so chill so completely chill so that was so funny that was so funny and and now for me she's the epitome or rather her you know she's playing a version of herself uh, i'm sure uh, for sure but but that's the key here is that what she's embodying or what she is uh, representing is an idea of flow of being in a flow state that when you love what you do and you're compelled by your purpose and your alignment and you have momentum behind that the momentum the sheer momentum of having been aligned for so long and having all that practice and knowing what feels good and how to do the job it is not effort it is effortless it is not labor Isabel would never describe her work as labor. And in fact, in interviews, she's frequently said that when she's acting, even if it's a very difficult role, and she's known for choosing extremely challenging roles, roles that other actresses would, would shy from, she doesn't say, she doesn't feel that they're difficult. To her, it's one and the same thing because it's tapping into a state of consciousness where she's not even thinking, where she's not even conscious. She's just there and she's just being. So I think here um, um, we're, we're really talking about getting into a sweet spot in work. And um, the signs behind this supports this. You know, the flow signs, which has been conducted since the 60s, um, uh, demonstrates that uh, in, in all kinds of professions, people that are performing at the peak of their profession are able to tap into a state of flow where the brain is producing neurochemicals that encourage and um, uh, enable motivation, creativity, and learning, and all of these things are enhanced. These are performance-enhancing neurochemicals. They call it the big five that are released into the brain. Um, neuro Norepinephrine, yes, dopamine, anandamide, serotonin, endorphins, they amplify intellectual and cognitive performance and they make you feel good. They make you feel good. That's the key thing. That's what dopamine does. It makes you feel good. It's like when you're on an adrenaline rush, 
you know, everything is heightened. You can absorb information so much faster. You're in the moment, like I am right now <laughs> with you. I'm in the zone. I'm so excited by being able, being able to do this. And um, I couldn't describe this as work. Um, and so I think um, a lot of uh, our attitudes about work, I think if Marx was alive today, and if he knew what we we know today about neuroscience, he would clarify what he he described as labor. To, I'm sure that he would he would encourage and support more of us, both the working and the ruling classes, uh, both the the capitalist owners and the workers, to try and get into states of flow more, so that the issues that we face with labor, a lot of those issues could be minimized when we are tapped into into that heightened state. Mm. I like how you round it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if Carl was in the room today, <laughs> that's what he would say. <laughs> I, I love how you round it up. Thank you. Um, which brings us to where? Uh, <laughs> where are we flowing to now? I think... Uh, I think hopefully, um, I think these are some big subjects that are very difficult to kind of find uh, any one neat solution to. And I don't think that the solution either is, uh, you know, whether capitalism is bad or, you know, what Marx described uh, is good. You know, Marx, he lived in a, and wrote in a time when the world had seen the biggest shift in modes of production and um, work that it had ever seen. It was a tremendous shift. So he was responding to that shift and, and all of the, 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 the new problems that that shift created in the 200 odd years since then that we've had to clarify and adjust our feelings about work. I think that there are a lot more middle ground places that intersect where we feel more comfortable inhabiting and um, I think it comes down to the um, the, the, the compass of uh, again what our work ethic is or what we want our work ethic to be rather than allowing any particular socio-political system or culture to define it for us in our vocabulary of work in our own dictionary of work, it's important for us to personalize this term work ethic and then try to find people that can support us in, in that. And that concludes our discussion on modern work ethic as seen through the lens of flow signs and our closer than you think good friend Karl Marx and his ideas on how modern capitalist work create alienation. Hopefully we've given you some juice to rethink your relationship with work. And if you need a break, check out Netflix's hit French show about the world of agents in the film industry. Call My Agent season four has recently premiered with such guest stars as Sigourney Weaver and Charlotte Gainsbourg. Thank you so much guys for willing to dive deep and go geek with myself and Dewey on the show where we find the surprising connections between subjects that may seem unconnected in order to better make sense 
of this complex and layered world of ours. I am your daydreaming sensei, Gary Young. You can follow my Instagram at gary.yong and my YouTube channel if you're interested to check out my film work. For more information on Dewey, check out her site, iamdewey.com or follow her on Instagram at iamdeweyforever. Leaving you with the words of Victor Hugo, thought is the labor of the intellect and reverie is its pleasure.